So good to be with you and to worship together this morning. We're thankful that all of you made it. I don't think the roads were too bad, so that's good. Um, Just before we get going for the morning, I wanted to draw your attention. Out on the welcome table, I've got a pile of books. The book is The Heart of the Church by Joe Thorne. And as I'm kind of planning out how we're going to go through Ephesians and what passages we're going to take together and that kind of thing, it became really obvious that the book of Ephesians lays out a really clear picture of what the gospel is. We have the salvation we receive from God. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus. We have our sanctification, the way that we are to live now as believers. And this short book walks through that gospel message in really simple, clear terms. I'm going through this with one of you. It's very, very good, and I highly recommend it. They're $5 out at the table. If you don't have five bucks with you, please take one anyways. Very good resource for you to read and be reminded of the basics of the gospel. Very good. Highly recommended. So this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 11, and 12. So if you want to open there, um, just want to ask a couple questions as we begin. Is Have you ever wondered, what is the will of God? I'm sure all of us at some point have thought, Okay, I've got a decision to make. What would God have me do? Especially as believers, that's an important posture for us to take. What does God desire of me? And how should I think about this? Maybe you're praying for something or for someone and you want to know, how do I pray according to God's will? Six times in the first 11 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, we see either the will of God or the purpose of God, which are very similar Verse 1, I'm just going to list these real quick. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Verse 5, we were adopted according to the purpose of his will. It's kind of a twofer. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. It's 4. And then in verse 11, we've obtained this inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Six times in the first 11 verses we see the purpose or the will of God. And when the Bible repeats something this often in that short amount of time, we would do well as believers to pay attention and try to figure out what's going on. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, but I want to draw our focus or our attention to that theme that comes out in the book of Ephesians, which is the will of God. We've already looked in pretty great detail at the predestining of God. If you remember back from verses 4 and 5, we covered that. We said that God's predestination is his broad scope of planning everything that comes to pass. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. If you missed those, you can go on the website and listen to those sermons. So if you haven't already, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and follow along as I read through verse 12. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, all of us as your children, if we are your children, desire to know what your will for us is. We desire to know, Lord, what would, what would it look like to live a life that's pleasing to you. And I am so, so thankful that you did not leave us on our own to figure things out. You gave us the two greatest gifts in your word and your Holy Spirit. And all of this because of what Jesus did. So this morning as we open your word, I pray that you'd give clarity to me as I speak I pray that your word would stand forth as the truth, and I pray for every heart that's here hearing this, Lord, that it would be an encouragement, and that we would come away knowing you better and loving you more. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So this morning, as we open the word together, like I said, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, and we're going to see a theme that's in a lot of the scripture, in addition to this theme of the will of God, we also see the theme of revelation and response. So God shows us something, he reveals something, whether in his word, whether in creation, and then we are called to have a certain response to that thing, revelation and response. And using our text in Ephesians 1 as an example, we see this in verse 11, the revelation of God's purpose and his will, just as we've seen all the way through. And then in verse 12, we see what our response to that should be, namely to the praise of his glory. I'm going to keep it really simple this morning. I have two main points. You could probably say them before I do. Number one, the revelation of God's will. Number two, the response of praise. So let's start in verse 11 with the revelation of God's will. In him we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now when we read about the inheritance, this is in several places in scripture, but we think about it in terms of our inheritance, what God has stored up or kept for us as believers. We see this also in 1 Peter 1. If you remember from the, there's a lot of parallels between Ephesians and 1 Peter, and I would just commend that you read those together as we work through this because there's a lot of similarity. Sometimes the other guy says it a little bit different and it's helpful in understanding that. But First Peter 1, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kind of paraphrasing there. But because of the words that are used in the original language and some of the context, there's some people that read this and don't get the inheritance part, or they think that maybe it's talking about God's inheritance of us as believers. In fact, if you have a NIV or an RSV for a Bible, you don't even see the word inheritance in there. It just says we've been chosen or predestined to the praise of his glory. However, I, I tend to agree with the ESV's translation and think that we should read this in terms of 
our inheritance as believers. If you remember what we talked about earlier with this whole chapter one, Paul is stacking up the blessings that you and I, when we receive Christ by faith, we receive all of these blessings. And we saw those as we worked through redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our sins, adoption into the family, all of these things. And we can put an inheritance, a future reality of God's grace that's stored up for you and I as his children. As I said then, when we started that, we already looked at what it means for God to predestine us. If you remember, it was his overarching plan, his broad scope of ordaining everything that happened. So I want to spend the rest of our time under this first point talking about the purpose and the will of God, both in general and then we'll come back and see how it relates to our text in Ephesians. Paul is strongly emphasizing by using the words that he does here in verse 11 and 12, the fact that God is not responding to events that happen and not like he's waiting for things to happen and then he kind of decides what it's going to be, but he has a carefully designed plan for his children, especially as it concerns the choosing and redeeming of those children. This word purpose here in verse 11, according to the purpose of him, means to to set forth or to put into place definitely. So we see God acting in a way that is in accordance with his own will and acting in a way that is definite. So when we read that God acted in according to his own purpose, he wasn't influenced by anything outside of himself, we should hear in that that God has absolute or what we might call sovereign power. When God decrees a thing to happen, it happens. But even as I say that, questions then kind of start to come up, or at least they should start to come up in our minds. Questions like, okay, so if God is all-powerful and he works everything according to his own will, then why do terrible things still happen? Why is there hurt, pain, loss? Are those, are those God's will? How are we to think about those things? How are we to think when we read from Isaiah 46 and it says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel will stand. And on one hand, we say, Yes, amen. And on the other hand, we mourn the loss of family and friends and sickness. So, how do we put those things together? These are questions that, as Bible believing, blood-bought Christians we need to wrestle with. You cannot read the Bible and avoid the fact that there seems to be a tension between the will of God. On one hand, God declares, this is my will, and yet we see people go against it. And then in other ways, God says, this is my will, and it cannot be broken. So what's, what's going on with this? There's a couple ways to think about this. And I just want to give some scriptural examples before we jump into exactly what it means. So on one hand, I'll just give you an example. God has a standard for people to live by. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. Verse 3. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God has a standard of purity that he says, this is my will. And yet when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, what are we going to see in verse 19? They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
Well, what happened? I thought God's will was that we live in purity, and yet it's clear that people don't always do that. There's a helpful way that Christians have thought about this all the way back from Paul into the Old Testament to the early church fathers, and that is that when we think about the will of God, we should think about it in terms of two wills. I'm not saying heretical things. I'm going to show you this from the Bible. This doesn't mean that God is split into two or schizophrenic or something like that. This means that he has what we would call a hidden or sovereign will, and he has his revealed will that he has given us in the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Think about this in terms of sovereign or secret will and moral will, what God would have us to do, how he would have us to act and relate to one another. This is illustrated, this fact that there seems to be two different ways of looking at this in the book of Deuteronomy. This is probably a verse you've heard before. In chapter 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So there's a plan of God that he has that we will not know until after it happens. And there's a plan of God that he has revealed to us in his word, and this passage affirms that in my thinking. When the Bible says that God's wills something, it can either be referring to the secret or hidden will, or it can be referring to something that he has revealed. So let's look at a few examples of this. Here are some passages that will illustrate the sovereign will of God, the secret will that cannot be broken. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says, he does, God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stay his hand or call him into question and say, what have you done? Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Job, chapter 42, Job has gone through this discourse with God and kind of been put in his place And he comes to the understanding of who he is and who God is. And he says this in verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. These give a clear picture to us of God's will and purpose that cannot be changed or broken. So now let's look at some examples of God's moral will. The will that he has revealed to you and I through his word. In Exodus chapter 20... Of course, we know this as the Ten Commandments, God's instructions for his people, and we read things like this. In verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. It's God's will, yet people murder, steal, and commit adultery every day. Here's a fun one from Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, here comes the will, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You ever gone against that one? Maybe around the first Tuesday of November? Of course we do. Or this from Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This is God's will for us, and yet we fail constantly in these areas. So those are some places that give us examples of the two different ways that we can interpret God's will. So let me ask you this. How do you know which will you're dealing with? Come to a situation in your life. Come to a text in the Bible. How do you know if it's secret or revealed? What if you're in a situation, you're asking yourself, God, what is your will for me in this? What do you want me to do? 
Like I said, that's a good way for us to think. It's a good desire for the Christian. Here's what R.C. Sproul said about this. Sproul is a modern pastor, theologian in Florida. Brilliant guy, passed away a couple years ago. He said this, The distinction between God's hidden will and his revealed will gives us a great deal of freedom. We do not have to worry about his hidden will because we can't know it anyways. But as long as we seek to obey his revealed will, which is right here, we may freely do whatever is in accordance with that will. Here's what he's getting at. We will not know the secret will of God until after it happens. Because it's secret. We don't know. Whatever has happened in the past up to this moment right now that I just said that has been God's will because it happened. So there's a way in which to think that that is the will of God. So he's saying we should not spend a great deal of mental energy and stress and wrestling trying to determine the things that we were never intended to know. Going back to Deuteronomy, the secret things belong. He has possession of them. Those are his. Rather, we can look at what God has revealed through his word and make decisions and live our lives based on what we do know rather than guessing and speculating. If you come to me and say, <coughs> excuse me, don't say that. If you come to me and say, Pastor Jacob, I just, I'm in this situation and I just, I don't, I want to know what God's will is. You know what I'm going to say to you? What does the Bible say? And we're going to look together at God's word. Because if we as Christians want to know what God's will is, and this is what our Bible looks like most of the week, how are you going to know? Oh, I want to know God's will. Open this. Open this and read it. And you will know what God desires from you. You live according to this book, you do not have to worry about being contrary to God's will. Because that's what he's revealed for us. So coming back to Ephesians 1. Which one of the wills are we dealing with in Ephesians 1? Verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, I would say here that we're dealing with the hidden or secret will of God. You and I don't know how God works all things according to his own plan and purpose. That's not for us to know. In fact, from our perspective, a lot of times it looks like things are going opposite direction from what we would think that God would will, and they are. So I'm going to say more about this all things in verse 11 when we close in a few moments because, like I said a while ago, there are things that happen to us, whether it's our own doing, whether it's from something outside of us that really is hard to put together. We don't think that, how could this possibly be God's will? So we're going to touch on that as we close in a few moments. In this passage, which we just looked at in 11, I think it's meant to give us both comfort and courage. For one thing, if, if God has, in his own will, determined that we as his children will obtain an inheritance, then we can have confidence that we'll get it. You don't have to worry about the certainty of what God has promised because he does according to his will all the time in that regard. So this passage shows us the revelation of God's will, an example of that, that we will obtain this inheritance. Number two, 
from verse 12, the response of praise. Verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. When God reveals himself to us, what should our response be to that revelation? When you look at the outside world, I know a lot of us don't like the snow, yet we all live here, so we can't hate it that bad. But you see something like snow, something that God does in his power. What a display of power, that it can be 90 degrees one day, and two weeks later there's snow on the ground. Who can do that? God can do that, because he wants to. So how are we to think about what should the response be when we look outside and we see, oh, fall time in Minnesota is so beautiful. What should you do? How about when you hear a song on the radio, you listen to a sermon, you, you read a book, something that reveals something about God to you, what should our response be? Ephesians 1.12 tells us that we should respond by praising the glory of God. Now we know one of the things that was happening in the church was that the Gentiles were being included at this time when Ephesians was written. The Gentiles were being brought into the church, which was largely made of Jewish Christians at that point. And so what I'm trying to get at here is when it says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. I want to know, what what does that mean? So this is what we're getting at. At that time, the Gentiles were coming into the church, and it was creating some tension, some different responses from some of the Jewish Christians because they were kind of having the thought that we were special, we were elite, we were whatever. And now Paul's saying, hey, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and we are coming together. So I want you to open your Bible and look again, starting at verse 11, and I'm going to make an explanation of what these we, you, our, what those are, because that's going to help us to see what he's talking about in verse 12. So start in verse 11, read along with me, please. In him, we... Jews, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, Jewish believers, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you, Gentiles, when you, Gentiles, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, both Jew and Gentile, our inheritance. So I think that in verse 12, when Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, he means Jewish believers, but I also think that he has in mind the fact that the gospel is at its inception right now. It's at the beginning stages. And Paul knows, because he's already seen it happen in his context, that this gospel will be preached in all the world. It came here, all the way from there, and aren't you glad it did? And so I think he also has in mind not only that the Jewish people were the first to hope in God, but that they were the first of many who would hope in God because of missionary efforts like Paul's own. Moving on in verse 12, this is the second time that Paul has called us to praise, and he's going to do it once more in verse 14. Earlier in verse 6, he said it was to praise God's glorious grace. And then here in verse 12 and also in verse 14, it is to praise God's glory. As Paul considers all that God has done for us, for believers, and we already listed out a lot of those benefits, he calls us because of that, because of the revelation of what God has done, 
he calls us now to praise and worship. You remember when we started, I said that this theme exists, this seeing something of God and being called to a response, and that's what we're dealing with right here. You cannot praise or worship something that you don't know. You can't. You have to know something. Think about how strange it would be. I mean, this happens, so every analogy kind of falls apart eventually. So don't, don't be really technical. Just think about this. Think about if you're not married and you're walking in the caribou or wherever you go and you see someone and you just instantly say, let's get married. We don't know anything about them. How are you going to have true affection for someone you don't even know? So when the Bible calls us to have affections, when Paul says, praise the glory of God, he's not saying, praise it just because I told you to. He's saying, praise God because of this and this and this and this. This is why our worship at Grace Bible Church is saturated with the word of God. Can you imagine if Josh just stood up here on a Sunday morning and said, all right, let's sing. We'd all be like, okay, I'll sing and blah, blah, blah. But no, we want to sing because of what we see in the Bible, which is, I'm so thankful for Josh and for his commitment to keeping our worship centered on the word of God. We cannot worship what we don't know. You can't praise a God that you know nothing about. You're sensing the theme here. You want to know the will of God? Look to his word. You want to worship God? Look to his word. Grace, Bible, church. We want to be centered on the word of God, and I believe that Paul would agree with that, which is why we see in Ephesians 1 that worship and praise follow the revelation of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. We see the acts of God, and we're called to praise his glory. Now, we talked a lot about the will of God this morning, and I told you that we'd come back as we close And all I want to do is to try to give a little context and try to help us understand in verse 11 when Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So are are we to believe that when Paul says all things, he really means all things? Remember we saw in scripture that there's these two different ways of looking at the will of God. Of God, that we can know the will of God, and there's also His willing that we cannot know. So, when we say that everything happens according to the will of God, which is what Paul is saying in verse 11, we are not saying that God gives hearty approval to everything that happens in the world. We are affirming His loving sovereignty and control over all events of the universe and recognizing that God is the only one who can take evil and use it for good. You remember in Genesis, towards the end of the book, the story of Joseph and about him being sold into slavery by his brothers. They get reunited. Joseph's high up in the governmental system in Egypt. The brothers come back. Their father, Jacob, dies. And the brothers get really nervous because they're thinking, oh man, Joseph has nearly unlimited power now in Egypt. And they're remembering all the nasty things they did to him, and they're going, ooh, I wonder what he's going to do to us. It's probably going to be really bad. And Joseph 
You can read about this in the Psalms. Joseph knew and understood that God had brought him through those things for a very specific reason. And this is what he tells his brothers. As for you, you meant evil towards me, but God meant it for what? Good. God meant it for good. God has this unbelievable ability to take the things that we view as so terrible and cause them to work for our good. And not only for our good, but eventually for our joy. Who else can do that? So I have two things as we close. As we talk about the will of God and how things that happen are happening according to God's design and God's plan, two applications. Number one, when we go through hard times together, when you're comforting someone who's grieving, do not be too quick to jump to, well, this was God's will. There's a time for that. There's a time to bring truth to a situation. It's not always at the hospital or at the grave. Yes, we affirm that this happened in some mystery according to God's purpose, but we don't have to jump there. Sometimes you just gotta be there. So don't be too quick to tell a grieving person, well, this was God's will. Let's be careful with this. Number two, we've already talked about this. As we try to make sense of God's will and understand it, don't neglect the Bible. Don't search and wrestle and struggle to know what God would have you do and leave your Bible closed. We've got to be in the Word. We've got to be in the Word together as a church and together as individuals and small groups and pairs and things. Husbands and wives, we've got to do it. It's the only way that we're going to make headway in knowing what God would have us to do. Let's pray together as we come to the table. Father, your word is, as the psalmist says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I give you praise that you have not left us without this light. I praise you, Lord, that you have preserved your word for thousands of years. That now we can read. We don't have to wonder what you would have us to do, but we can open your word that you have lovingly preserved and we can say, this is God's will for me, to walk in obedience. God, give us the strength through your spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you. We do not have that strength on our own. We need your help. And so I pray that you would be faithful, just as you always have been, to give us the help to live lives that are in accordance with your will. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.